Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Let's Talk Surgery podcast for RCS Ed. I'm your host, as always, Gregory Akata, colorectal registrar up in Edinburgh. And with me, once again, is my friend and co-host, Ceci. How are you? I'm fine, Greg. How are you? I'm great, thanks. The sun is shining in Edinburgh on this winter's morning. At the time of recording, we're still dealing with the coronavirus pandemic. So here's my check-in with you. How are you doing with the lockdown? I'm doing okay. Well, good days and bad, just like everyone, to be honest. But um, I'm particularly excited today. Today's a good day. We've got a great guest. I'm, I'm just so excited. That is correct. We do have a great guest. She is a YouTube sensation. She's from TED Talks and from the University of Aberdeen. We've got Professor Rona Flynn with us on the show today. Professor Flynn, or Rona, as I may call you from the rest of this episode. How are you? I'm good, thanks. And it's a sunny day in Aberdeen, so that's excellent. That's very cold, unusual for Aberdeen. <laughs> Oh, you a funny story, Rona. When I was applying to medical school, I came from a country called Nigeria as a young 15, 16 year old boy, lived in London for a couple of years. And then I was deciding on medical schools and I thought I wanted to go up north to Scotland. I took a trip to Aberdeen. It was March and it snowed. And I thought this is not for me. So I went out to Dundee and I loved it there. So my impression of Aberdeen is grey and snow all the time. But today seems to be an exception with the sun. Oh, Greg, just alienating our guests as usual. Wow, I, I have no words. That's and we have come from Glasgow. Well, you know, I don't know any of this East Coast jealousy stuff. Fantastic. Touche, touche. Right, uh, welcome to the show, Professor Flynn. So to our, to our audience and the guests who might not have seen your Tech Talks video or any of your videos on YouTube, we have had a few guests on the show, including Martin Brumley and... Professor Steve Yule, who have all sung your praises, but in your own words, who is Rona Flynn? Rona Flynn is a psychologist um, of rather a lot of years experience and um, someone who has worked in a lot of different um, uh, industry settings, work settings. So I have interest in, in human performance, um, particularly in higher demand settings, jobs like yours or flying planes or working in offshore oil rigs or nuclear power plants, all the things I wouldn't do myself interest me in terms of how other people manage to do those jobs so successfully. You may well have listened to previous episodes of the podcast, but if you haven't, what we tend to do is give you an opportunity to talk about yourself, and then I run through some quick-fire questions, which you weren't expecting. I'll keep them mild today. So, first thing, if psychology was not for you, what would you do? Alternative career. Uh, I don't know. That's quite... You know, you've been doing something for decades it's quite hard to think what else you might have done my parents were both artists oh. uh they were both art teachers my father was a cartoon, an art teacher and then i became a, car, a cartoonist so i came from quite an arty background and so, as a child i was quite um well provided with art instruction should i should i have wanted it and i you know i I, I don't know whether I would have had sufficient talent or not. And I thought, hopefully, I had some genetic endowment. And that is a field that interests me. You know, I occasionally uh, buy bits of Scottish art, like the one behind me. And um, I'm quite interested and spend time in art galleries and places like that when I'm traveling around. So maybe that would have been an, an option. Who knows? It would have been quite a different lifestyle. It's good to dream, but yes, you're, you're right. It sounds as though uh, the apple didn't fall far from the tree if you find yourself in art galleries a lot and, and um, looking at Scottish paintings. Well, well done with question one. Question two, this is a bit personal for me. Professor Steve Yule, Professor of Behavioural Psychology, is a good friend of the show. What one secret can you tell us about his early days? <laughs> he is listening. That, yeah, that's a good, that's a good, that's a good, a good question. He was a very good student. He was an undergraduate in Aberdeen, as you know, and then, and then we uh, worked together on, on um, many projects through, through his uh, career. I'd, <laughs> I would need to um, trudge through my memory for some dark, delicious tales, and I might be implicated <laughs> in the same events, so 
I think I might just uh, not fall into that particular uh, trap. And Steve and I have worked together for a long time and it's great to see him back in Scotland and running this programme in uh, Edinburgh, having had the benefit of a few years at Harvard. So um, I think this is a great asset for um, Scottish surgery that we've got uh, Steve back again. That is correct. It was worth a try. I thought I might entice you into telling me something, but as ever, well, well answered. In in some previous work of yours, you've talked about being welcomed into the operating theatres and having no previous experience of what surgeons and, and surgical performance was like. In that time since you've come into the operating theatres, quote unquote, what's the one thing you've learned the most that you can share with us about surgeons, surgical performance, theatre environment, and the teamwork that goes on in there? I don't think anything that you wouldn't know already. I mean, I have I have been impressed by surgeons' willingness, most surgeons, uh, in the early days of doing this work, to, to let um, psychologists in. I was initially in with the anaesthetist me in, and surgeons, of course, are approving my presence there, but um, there can be a number of people in operating theatres, as you probably uh, no, and I, and I guess when things at the anaesthetic end were quiet and stable, although I was supposed to be watching the anaesthetist, I would be kind of sliding down the <laughs> down the table to see what was going on, uh, where there was much more ac activity to watch. And the surgeons were very receptive and and very willing to explain somebody who knew nothing what they were they were doing. So. Um, yeah, I didn't have, I didn't, I was used to being in, in different kinds of workplaces because I'm essentially an industrial psychologist. That's what interests me is looking, watching people's work. And there uh, surprisingly are similarities between a lot of these high performance domains. You know, I have yeah. commented before that uh, operating theatre teams are not a million miles for like teams and drilling rigs and other places I have uh, work particularly in the early days where they were quite um, male dominated and there was quite a macho kind of culture and I know that's I know that's changed over particularly the last 20 years uh, probably but um, no I mean I did, it's, it's just a, a tremendous privilege to go into other people's workplaces particularly one where there's a patient has also yeah. consented for you to be be in there so that it was always explained we weren't really watching the patient that was the practitioners we were trying to watch and it could have been staff nurses or yeah. um, you know anesthetic assistants for other people it wasn't always a surgeon we were in there we can't yeah, I've always thought uh, it would be interesting to have uh, my performance in an operating theatre assessed by a psychologist, just just generally, because it's it's one of those things that you get tunnel vision during an operation and you just focused on the operation and the media surroundings. And I think there's, there is a lot to be learned by that external assessment of your non-technical skills. And I, and I hope that's something in future we do one way or the other, whether it's psychologists coming in or us surgeons doing it for each other. But final or question for you. Or you could just simply talk to the anaesthetists and the <laughs> nurses because they have a lot, they spend a lot of time watching surgeons in operating theatres such as yourself and they have formed all kinds of opinions about the surgeon's behaviour and attitudes and uh, other dimensions of their character. So if you're if you're hungry for that sort of information, I'm sure you've got a few colleagues who give you some insights. That's uh, very true. I, that is true. Yes, yes, you are correct. However, I want an unbiased view, and I cannot find an anesthetist that <laughs> no, is no, not I'm biased sure against you've got your views surgeon. Their performance. So, yeah. <laughs> I do. Clocks running. You're late. You're late. You're late. Sorry, anesthetist listening. Don't don't take that to heart. Right. Final question for me. Um, human factors. Uh, what is the one common misconception about human factors that you've come across? <laughs> um. Yeah, there's a number of common misconceptions I have heard now in the oil industry. Some people who are just learning about this calling it human resources. Oh. Uh, there's also, I think, because the true resource management, non-technical skills stuff has, has been an early introduction for many people in healthcare and also in other industries to some extent that they think human factors is just about that stuff and they don't know that it's, it's all these components about the work environment, the design of the tools and equipment you're working with and how 
fit they are for purpose, the culture. So there's like a raft of uh, dimensions to human factors. And I think the, I think the uh, main misconception is probably that it's rather narrower and it's just about behavior in, in teams. Um, and there is also some of the same misconceptions that psychology has, but it's not really very scientific and, you know, it's just common sense and everybody understands what drives behavior. People do have, you know, insight into, into behavior theirs and other people's, but there is a whole science behind it. And I think that um, surprised some um, of the surgeons and other um practitioners in the clinical world when we began to work that there was you know years and years of work studying teams and decision making and culture and trying to look at influences on performance and I think with the rise of psychologists being involved in things like sports psychology that sometimes is pub you know more public than the fact that there have been aviation psychologists or military psychologists or industrial psychologists but when the sports psychologists uh, began to get more publicity, when they were involved with the bigger teams and the bigger events, then I think that, that, that was kind of helpful in the idea that well, maybe psychologists did have something to say that, um, you know, specialists like yourself might find of, of some use if you're interested in how do you develop and, and maintain high performance. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, particularly the point around psychologists, because, you know, I'll, I'll confess that historically, my very narrow minded view was always that a psychologist was helpful when things went wrong and when things were going wrong to, to help you get better, as opposed to just globally helpful, whether things are going right, whether things are going wrong and everything in between. So I, I for one, have had some of those misconceptions and can confess that today. But I might edit and also, I think the myth that I was, oh, I can't even remember what document it was, but the, the, on the, on the non-technical skills stuff, the decision-making teamwork or whatever, there is sometimes a misconception that, that as you're saying, that that is just for crisis management. It's for right. emergency uh, management. And I think getting across the idea from aviation that it's for routine behavior, it's, it's really... Um, as, the, as the anaesthetists who are running the Scottish uh, Clinical Simulation Centre, who were the first people we worked with in this area, appreciated it was more about crisis avoidance. And in fact, right. they called their early, I don't know what they're calling it now, but they certainly called it the Sim Centre, their course crisis avoidance to get this idea across. It wasn't just for when things were going horribly wrong that you might think, oh, I need some help with my decision making. Yeah, the surgeons are still maybe lagging behind because we do have a course called Surgical Crisis Management. We might want to rename that to Crisis Avoidance, as you say. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah it's not to say that there are not, you know, you need these skills at a high level when time pressure is high and risk and risk is high. But um, it, it's more about maintaining safety and trying to reduce the likelihood of error or, or the likelihood that errors get caught by yourself or by other yeah. team members so that you're keeping the whole thing is about keeping the patient safe. Absolutely. Well, if we talk about your early years then, how did you get into, I mean, it's fascinating uh, human factors, human behavior and all the work you do, but from an early stage, university, pre-university, how did you go from potentially being an artist into this world of psychology, human factors, and then into the industrial psychology through the pilots to the surgeons? Bit longer, um, but you've got time. My mother had a book uh, about, um, I can never remember the name of this book, but it was by Vance Packard, and it was either called The Hidden Persuaders or The Human Persuaders. And it was about, I don't know if you've ever seen Mad Men, but it was about the psychologists who were working on Madison Avenue, these early heady days of advertising, and they were doing behavioral work and deciding why packets of blue washing powder sold to women and the yellow ones didn't. And I thought this sounds absolutely amazing this sounds great so I um, applied to do psychology with the idea of doing advertising and got a bit distracted by the psychology on the on the way in um, and then I worked in I uh, as a PhD student I worked on memory and and then I worked as a postdoc on um, eyewitness memory so I was doing work in children's memory and adults ability to remember um, 
places and events. Um, and then I, I, in order to get a lecture, it went to a business school and um, the oil industry was kicking off in Aberdeen at the time. So I was at Robert Gordon University then, where I am now, I'm back at a business school. And I started to get involved with the oil industry just before there was a major accident, Piper Alpha. And then I happened to be one of the very few psychologists with any interest in the offshore oil industry. So I started getting um, opportunities to do research with that industry, particularly after Piper, where it was evident that the accident, um, which killed 167 men that night, I mean, it's one of Britain's worst industrial accidents, was not just going to be solved by engineers and engineering and, and smart technology, that um, there were things to do with the culture and the way the work was being run and the way people were behaving. And so that was kind of an opportunity to get in and start working with this high risk industry. And then I just loved doing that, going offshore and learning how people worked in these. Um, I wasn't, I was trained as a cognitive psychologist, not an industrial psychologist, but I, um, I just really liked working in that, in those kind of settings. And, and from that, started to get the opportunity to work a bit in aviation, a bit in nuclear and these other kinds of environments. And um, so that, that sort of potted version of how I got into the sort of work I've been doing ever since. And what was the one thing that drew you into industrial psychology? You said you had some interest in, in industrial psychology around the time of the disaster. What was your interest in it? Obviously, that was... I was working by... in a business. I, I had moved from a psychology department where I was working on this cognitive psychology and forensic psychology into a, into a business school, which had not really been my career plan. And I really liked being in a business school. So anyway, in a department that had nothing but psychologists that everybody talked about psychology. I'm now, now in a world where... I was the only psychologist, there was one sociologist, and the others were all in marketing or economics, or they were accountants or lawyers, or and it was just quite an eye-opener. And then the chance to go and be in industry, and the students were all in placement in industry, seeing all kinds of different um, applications for, psycho for psychology. And of course, the oil industry was booming here in Aberdeen at the, at the time, and there were um, all sorts of interesting research questions about how you run those offshore platforms and keep everybody safe on them that I started to and then when Piper after Piper exploded there were there were um, uh, parts of Lord Cullen's report that dealt with how the emergency had been managed and that's where I started to get work on understanding how people take command in in emergency situations and and make decisions which I would be as I said earlier hopeless at myself um, and my husband and friends are most amused that I should choose to work in this area. I was once heading off to a nuclear power plant where we were working on emergency management stuff with the people who will be first in charge when there is some problem on a nuclear power plant that could result in a, a release. And I remember my husband saying as I was going out the door, ah, well, we're all sleeping much easier in our beds now that we know you're advising them on making decisions in emergencies. So, not everybody, yeah. so doesn't mean you don't have to be able to do it, I think, to be able to be interested in it and to study it. And maybe the surgery is a bit like that as well. It's, that's another profession I'm not having a go at. Oh, that's a fantastic career journey. I mean, for those of us, um, our listeners who are familiar with Professor Flynn's work, you know, she's been absolutely everywhere. In fact, the number of roles she's previously held could probably fill a whole sheet of A4 and beyond. So uh, in, in that interesting journey, how did you get involved or get found by the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh and end up doing non-technical skills with Steve Yule? Um, I have a friend, Fiona Gilbert, who is a professor of radiology now at, at Cambridge, and I seen you, I was interested in this, I had become, this is a long time ago, I'd become interested in this decision-making and emergency stuff, and I was looking at, I had a contract from the Health and Safety Executive to look at how do other um, industries, work settings, professionals, how are they selected and trained and have their competence assessed to handle emergencies? So I was going to the military, the police, the fire service, and clearly in your profession, 
um, not just surgeons, but you know, emergency emergency rooms, other paramedics, other people having to take life-threatening uh, decisions under under pressure. And she Donna, um, put me in touch with Rona Petty, who's a, a professor now at Aberdeen. And Rona let me go and watch uh, um, one of these, what do you call it, an ATLS course? Yes. Advanced Trot Life Support. Yes. And um, they were, it was like over a weekend. It was very interesting. And they had these moulage things where they were acting out. And I was waiting. I remember there were students were waiting or there were junior doctors waiting to go in to what was going to be a very tricky emergency room with several trauma patients and they were going to have to triage and stuff. And I was asking them, I remember, so what's the most difficult bit about the decision making? And they said, it's not making the initial decision, it's having made the decision, having then to wait sometimes till you see if it was the right decision. I thought, yes. oh, it's really, you know, just, you know, you can learn so much just asking this. My anticipation was making the first decision was worse, but it, it, for them was waiting for the feedback to see if a decision that you had made was having the right effect. Um, and so that through that, I began the anaesthetist um, obviously knew I was interested in this area. There were some of them setting up the first simulation centre in Scotland, again, 20 years ago. And I had been working with airline uh, pilots on a European project on looking at their non-technical skills. Yeah. And they were the anaesthetists, and this was um, Ronnie Guavan and Jutarina uh, and Nikki Moran, who's in Edinburgh. Um, they were running the sim centre, and they said... Um, simulations, and this is great, our training our staff in there, and we're very good at giving technical feedback. You know, we can say wrong tube, wrong pressure, should yeah. be this, but I said, but we're not so good at giving the other feedback we've discovered. So either we're inconsistent, so we don't describe things in the same way, or we just say there's something about the way you've managed that. I don't like the look of, but I can't quite tell you what it was. And then when they saw the work that we had been doing in aviation that was well established in the airlines by then, you know, defining what situation awareness was, it wasn't a term they used in the, or decision-making or the teamwork bits. They said when they saw these systems that were being used for the pilots to rate each other's behavior, and they said, Oh, this is exactly the sort of stuff we need. We need all these skills, and we don't. We don't have a, a common language. We all describe these things differently, and then the trainees don't know what we mean. And um, could we develop something? So we applied to the Scottish Council for Postgraduate Education um, to give us some funding uh, to start doing the work of collecting information on what these skills might be and what they would look like, these behaviours, for anaesthetists when they were anaesthetising. Yeah. And Nikki was working with Simon Patterson-Brown, who's yeah. an Edinburgh surgeon, he's well known, um, and Simon then became interested and he had previously worked with a, a psychologist on another project and so <laughs> he was unusually receptive to this sort of um, science and so we then started to work and other surgeons started to, the college started to through Simon and David Rowley, uh, George Youngson began to support the work and the college funded the, the yeah because as you know not very much research can take place unless somebody's funding it yes so, uh, you know we had limited um, government funding but then the college started to co-fund and then the college took over some of the and that's when Steve came to work on the on the CBO came to work on the project um, then and he worked closely with the college surgeons in terms of helping us develop the tool for surgeons and then the nurses became involved after that. Absolutely fantastic can I just say I think you know everybody the names that you're mentioning. Well, it's name dropping, surgical <laughs> name dropping. It's a bad. But surgeons it's, never it's do working. that, do they? <laughs> oh, no, we, we no. are kings and queens. Being an of... old person, you know all these people. Oh, isn't your career journey fantastic? I, I feel like you should write an autobiography if you if you've not done it already, because it would be great just seeing your the evolution of Professor Flynn, and in all this time what's the main thing that you've noticed that 
surgeons or, or that's different about the surgical profession from when you started this whole psychology non-technical skills to now or I hope things have changed for the better I yeah hope. I think they I think I think they have changed I think the culture has has changed and not just in your workplace but in in um, many workplaces in that same uh, time uh, period and um, and many more women in in surgery now coming through into there were there were been women in for a good number of years but they were in quite small small numbers and many more women coming through but the I think the whole culture uh shifting and what was to deemed acceptable behavior and what wasn't acceptable um behavior um I you know the campaign recently that the college ran the cut it out campaign on the unacceptable behaviors around yes. belittling others or bullying others and many workplaces have these kind of things um going on to a degree more than they than they should um and so i think there's much greater awareness now um and there's a greater awareness of that on the on the behavioral side and i think there's greater recognition of surgeons vulnerabilities and frailties as well um, whether it's trainees trying to cope with that culture and the high work demand and the exams and everything go, going on um, or to do more generally through the the profession I see this not just in your profession but I see it in, in other industries like the construction industry for example where there's um, which is another male, traditionally male-dominated industry where uh, there's much more discussion now about people's mental health and what should be done and the fact the acknowledgement that people can have either work-related or non-work-related mental health issues at times during their career and that um, it should be possible for people to um, talk about that and get help and being in a supportive organisation and we're seeing that much more as well the pandemic may have slightly um, you know lowered some of the thresholds on that because uh, certainly the universities are putting out messages all the time at the moment about supporting uh, staff and we're seeing these discussions in healthcare so you know there are there are the um, there may be some hidden benefits to what's going on in the in the last year in terms of the work culture. Definitely, and it suddenly made me reflect a lot on what is important to life, and just realizing that even though as surgeons we generally think we are God's gift to the world, we are at the end of the day just human beings who are very vulnerable and who can fail and make mistakes. So. I think everything that you said really resonated with me and I'm glad that you've seen a culture change. And for those of you, um, our listeners today, um, Professor Flynn has written a whole lot of books on a lot of things that she's been talking about. So go pick up a book. Um, my personal favorite is Safety at the Sharp End. Um, I must admit it, it took me a while to get into it because it really delves deep, but I very much enjoyed it. So thank you for that. Uh, I don't know what you think, Greg. Yeah, no, I, th I think you're absolutely right. And um, you also wrote another book, Enhancing Surgical Performance. Was that pre-Knots, was it? No, that was post-Knots. And that was, we just edited that one. So a lot of surgeons uh, and others contributed to that book. So Steve and, and uh, Steve Hill and George, George. and I edited that and uh, persuaded some other people to to write. So, so uh, yeah, and we wrote The Safety of the Sharp End, book, which, yes, people have said, uh, could be a bit shorter, um, but we wrote it because when we worked initially with the anaesthetist, they said um, so. We'd like to read a we'd like to read a bit more of the background to what these psychological concepts are and, and what what the evidence was to support them. But we don't really have time to read twenty of your psychology books. And is there one book we could read that would have all this stuff in it? And um, we couldn't recommend particularly out. A book there were some books written for pilots but they weren't they were aviation specific so um three of us um worked on that safety at the sharp end book which i know has been used in, in, in quite a number of um settings and we have had quite good feedback uh 
on it, but I'm sure I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure it can be made an easier read. Just wanted to pick up actually going back when you talked about sort of the vulnerabilities and some of the good that might come out of COVID in terms of checking in with the mental health and helping each other. We spoke to Martin Brumley recently and out of some of the not so good things in his life came something good with the Clinical Human Factors Group, which I know you're a part of. What's some of the work that you do with him in that? Yeah, I think the Clinical Human Factors Group that he set up has has played an influential role, he in particular has played a very influential role in getting human factors um, more accepted in the world of of healthcare. And he continues to do that while also being busy flying as uh, a captain in an airline. So um, yeah, and the the group are are working on some um, hopefully very accessible, short kind of educational materials now, because that video, that initial video that Martin made about his wife's death, it must have been seen by so many practitioners and not just in, you know, in the clinical world. I was yeah. I was on an RAF base um, with um, fast jet pilots flying things like tornadoes, and I was asking about what kind of uh, crew resource management, non-technical skills training they got. And the trainer said, well, we show that video with the anaesthetic access. <laughs> I said, why do you show that? Why are you showing that? You know, a video set in a hospital. Why are you showing that to these um, pilots? And the trainer said, because it's just all the same stuff, you know, to get into a dreadful situation. Um, can happen in their world as it as it did that day in, in that hospital. So uh, just to understand those uh, factors and how easy it is for that horrible combination of events to occur and, and nobody sees that evolve, evolve. It's very easy to see afterwards, but very difficult to see when you're in the middle of it. Fantastic. Uh- just as a little fun fact for our listeners, um, that video was actually shown to me on my very first day of medical school. And I remember being absolutely horrified by it, thinking, oh, I, I thought I was coming to medical school and I'll get all these skills and I will be absolutely invincible when I have the knowledge. But the way they, the, the lecturer at the time kind of constructed that lecture, what he was trying to get across is that you are a human being and it's very important to have situational awareness and uh, shout out to my alma mater um, Newcastle University they were absolutely fantastic in putting human factors and situational awareness at the very heart of every single thing we did even from the preclinical years that video is it, it makes you think doesn't it that that video um just going back to it and that just leads me nicely to the work you've done with surgeons and in the operating room what key themes have you noticed in decision making in surgery and and the high pressured situations we get into are there any specific key things that you can pick up that keeps coming up over and over again um so we our interest we haven't done that much work but the work we had done was uh really trying simply to uh, get a better understanding of how surgeons were making uh, decisions, and um, so we did a few preliminary studies in that in that uh, area. I think there's some underlying um, themes, as as you're asking for, that that would be interesting to explore still around how surgeons um, identify and evaluate risks because that then affects the kind of ways they take decisions, how they do things like um, estimate available time. You know, how much time have you got to pause the surgery or step back or um, seek help or, you know, I think there's sort of underlying components of decision-making that that would still be very interesting to Evaluate. I've always really liked the work of Caroline Moulton, who's a senior surgeon in uh, Toronto. Uh, she's an HPB surgeon and she somewhat unusually has a PhD that was supervised by an educational psychologist looking at uh, decision, intraoperative decision making. And she had done 
actually done a number of really interesting studies, but also looking at things that are not so often explored is like surgeons' underlying value systems that are maybe influencing decision-making, um, things that they are prepared to talk about and things that they're aware are affecting their decision-making or could be that are less maybe politically correct to discuss. Um, and, um, you know, doing something because you want to try or develop your skill or there's other senior surgeons watching you and, you know, the kind of things that might influence you carrying on a little bit longer with something before changing it or, I mean, I think those, and because she's a surgeon herself, I think she's able to interview surgeons in a way that um, seems to make them um, quite forthcoming. And she's also done some work, I think, looking at different levels of stress while people are operating. That, that That's quite interesting as well, some of the more physiological components of what you're doing, because it could be a lot, depending on your field, you can be running long, um, tiring procedures. I was often amazed for how long surgeons would work at the table without having any kind of a of a, a break. And that was quite that was quite normal for them and their colleagues. Yes. Still is. Uh, yeah. And 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 we all wonder how you know you, you start an operation and, and you look up and it's five hours later, six hours later, and it's, it's part of that tunnel visioning. Uh, that we talked about earlier. Yeah, and um, I know I kind of imagine you know you're 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 trained to work that way, and there are clearly benefits of just carrying on with the task when you have, you have complete understanding, and you don't want to lose your visual field. Never mind your thought processes about about where you are, and um, uh, but that takes a lot of stamina to uh, work that way. I imagine. Well, I wonder if it's stamina or insanity, because I know there's certainly been times I've stepped back from the operating table and think, "Gosh, I really need a wee, and I'm so very hungry and so very tired," and I don't realise until I've stepped back. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Some of the good surgeons actually, and sorry, I guess some surgeons <laughs> in a certain situation where we're safe to do so after a while, we'll call a pause to the operation, go for a 10 minute break and come back to do critical elements because we know that that helps minimize your error. So I think we're becoming more and more aware of it and and where it's safe to do so, we, we do try to stop. But you're right, we still have a ways to go in terms of recognizing and having that full situation awareness and, and making better decisions. But I wanted to pick up another aspect of non-technical skills, which would be around communication. We know that that is a big part of our everyday life, both verbal, non-verbal, and many other facets to communication, particularly in the stressful environments and high-pressure situations. What are your thoughts, both in surgery, but also, I guess, aviation and industrial psychology around communication and dealing with stress or communication during high pressure situations i think in so, i think in some of these high in some of these situations you kind of uh need to have almost formulaic ways of communicating because you need to do that in a very concise precise way and i, I think you see in other um professions where and emergency services where they have standard ways of communicating in, in higher pressure situations where that's practiced and rehearsed and people understand particular phrases and code words and uh, etc. Um, and I guess that evolves sometimes in terms of people's own people's own um, practice. And that's a real it's it's something involving the whole team and the team having to understand. The nonverbal piece is really interesting and I don't think has been studied. I did run in a, a study once, but we didn't get probably far with it. Um, it was just an undergraduate project when we were trying to look at people's uh, in the um, clinical world, in the operating theatre world, um, ability to recognize expressions and emotions from masked faces. And with all these masked faces walking about supermarkets and many other places, nice, you're not the only ones getting to wear yep. the, the masks. And it was kind of a hypothesis, a hypothesis about whether because you spend so much time in that environment, whether you know you read those signals um, better. Uh, I don't know. We didn't get enough data to. You know, the thing started as a very small project, um, 
and we didn't we didn't pursue it. But I don't think there was anything very clear. We we're trying to look at historical teams rather than the data weren't clear. But it's clear that people in operating theatres do spend quite a lot of time processing non-verbal aspects of each other's behaviour. Maybe less the surgeons who often have their eyesight well into the surgical field and maybe somewhat oblivious to what else is going on. I was in a theatre once where one of the nurses, the scrub nurses who were scrubbed in, started to faint and the surgeon was, was pulled off by other nurses before there was a complete collapse. And I don't, I'm not sure the surgeon actually Anyway, whatever, he was very involved in them. And so you should be, I mean, I would quite like your eyes on my <laughs> tissues or bones when you're operating on, on me. But everybody else in theatre is watching each other. And, and it's quite interesting talking to scrub nurses about the kind of signs they watch, because sometimes surgeons wouldn't tell them explicitly um, how they were feeling or that things maybe weren't quite going to plan, but they'd say, but we know anyway, because, you know, he clenches uh, his jaw or um, he um, always steps out his clogs at that point, or she stops humming when it gets to that bit. And so they were processing all these signs. These were people working together in teams and um, had their own clues for uh, judging how well the procedure was going. So um, again, it would be quite interesting to look at some of that expert knowledge that's around around there. And I, I you know, uh, we all do, we all process that information uh, more probably than we realise and probably give away more information than we realise. That's really interesting you say that. And um, I, I guess it's an important message for our listeners, the importance of the team especially when you're focused on a particular task, because um, I've been very lucky in my life to work with some fantastic anaesthetists and scrub nurses and ODPs and porters and cleaners, and especially the ones you work with a lot, they just know you and they know when you're not having such a good day. And if you have that good relationship with your team, they feel that Oh, I personally believe that they feel more confident to step up and support you and to probe deeper into why you might not be feeling so good because at the end of the day the, the center of it all is the patient so for all you young up-and-coming surgeons you are not center of the universe you are working within a team and there will be many times that the anesthetists and the scrub nurses and everyone around you will prevent you from making a big mistake and they will look after you if you look after them so I think that's very important that team mentality and and I guess you do that for them as well if you if you know the anaesthetist has been on call or something else is happening or, um, you know, that's, I guess things are going on in everybody's lives that they may or may not be sharing with you. So, you know, I guess you too can do that because even though you're not maybe eyeing the team the whole time, you're certainly lis- listening, uh, I guess, to a lot of, of that. I have made a lot of cups of tea and I've baked a lot of cakes and I've hugged a lot of people and I've gotten hugs from a lot of people. I'm just that sort of person. But it, it's just how I work. And I think it just makes the, the team better and just makes the dynamic better. I, I don't know if you're a cake baker, Greg. I can see you. Uh, no, no, uh, no. You better get that vision out of your head. I am more, I'll buy the cakes from the shop for the team. More than happy to give a hug post-COVID. But Rona, two things for me though. One, eight to 10 years of surgical training makes you a little bit adept at reading the non-verbal cues of your bosses and the people that work around you. So that's maybe why surgeons are good at it, in addition to being used to wearing a mask all the time. And second of all, I urge you, and you know this is on, on the record uh, plug, but I urge you to press on with that uh, research about non-verbal communication of behaviors in the operating theater i think it's got a lot of mileage and you know if i can do anything to help facilitate that even doing a phd just just to, to do that because i think it's important if we can find an objective way of measuring it or or assessing it i think it's definitely something that we as surgeons or our surgical teams can can definitely benefit from and that's that speaks to if i come full circle to what i said at the start about having somebody assess my performance in the operating theater not necessarily just what I say (laughs) probably don't want to do that but it's the things I don't say and you know how 
how tightly I grasped that instrument from the nurse because I'm a little bit uh, irritated that it's taking three seconds longer to come. Or, you know, did I shake her hand at the start or his hand at the start of the operation or at the end? Um, things like that, I think, is important for us as surgeons to learn. So I, I would urge you, if you do have the capacity with your research team, to look to look at our non-verbal. But things like, I wonder, do you think things like the checklist and the, those procedures at the beginning because this whole thing about people introducing themselves and yeah. even just finding out the names of who you've got in the in the in the team I remember doing a very early questionnaire uh, and the student was sent who was doing it was sent off to talk to three surgeons and to look at this this is a, a questionnaire and sort of teamwork that we were doing as part of the development work and there were these questions on oh this is a long time ago 20 years ago there were these questions on briefing uh, the team, which was normal in industry, and uh, this had come from aviation, and the surgeon said, you might as well take these questions out, because we don't do any of that. <laughs> and we said to the student, oh, just keep them in then, because we'd like, and, uh, you know, the, the, the whole, the whole um, uh, introduction of some of these tools that have been used in other, in other settings, which um, may have seemed quite unnecessary to, to many experienced surgeons, I think the data have shown there are benefits there and and this is saying if the team's more comfortable and the team's happy the team is going to work better and just those moments of introduction or clarifying risks or time or i think have all kinds of benefits absolutely Definitely. and and thankfully we do have the the checklist and the briefs now sort of pre-list brief and sometimes a debrief post-list and you're absolutely right the key thing about uh checking who you're working with today what is their name and in some hospitals now we have scrub caps and theater caps that have your name written on it which i think is it's got positives and negatives but it just means that people are less likely to have that moment to stop and say hi i'm greg who are you because it's written on your head um, and i see yeah. in the i see in these i see i don't know if that was normal and i ITUs, I don't think so, but you know, you see them yeah. now and they're they're televised, that they've got their names written big writing on the front or the back. Yeah. And some of those things might actually be quite helpful to retain. Correct. Yeah, big hospitals, big busy units. Uh, so much easier to get somebody's attention if you can say Greg rather than, you know, try to find Oi. something to attach. Oh yes. Definitely. And I think um I hope that we'll see a big change because there have been a number of times that in, in high pressure or emergency situations, you, you spend an hour, two hours with a person and you don't even know what they're called. And I think it's important to the team dynamic that we keep such practices. I know certainly how um, impersonal, how hurtful it can be if someone just doesn't even bother to learn your name I had one boss that called me Teresa for four months despite <laughs> me trying to correct him he, he just he just didn't care and I guess the difficulty in modern times is with the evolution of shift work and the dissolution of the firm it's quite common to work with people that you've never worked with before but if we all take that extra few seconds to find out who you're working with I think we'll all work better now we have had such a fantastic time with you, Rona, and I know you've had such a long, long career and such a fruitful career in psychology. In all those years of your practice, is there one key tip that you can give to us as surgeons that will help us with our situational awareness, decision making and our behavioural practices in theatre? I think I think your 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 thoughts about about the team and and working with the with the team are probably uh, an essential part of that. I mean, you can um, obviously uh, increasing self awareness of your own performance limitations may be also part of that. You know, the the um, pilots have to pass an exam in performance limitations before they get their first license, and that's. A bit like you being shown that film, the Martin Bromley uh, film at the beginning, you know, just right from this, the, the start, emphasising that, um, you know, the high demand's going to place on you, but you're not going to be able to be superhuman physiologically or psychologically. So I think maybe the whole, and you see in other, in other settings, that self-awareness piece about 
A, your cognitive limitations and also how the team can compensate for that and the importance of, as the studies in rudeness have shown, how, how those social behaviours can impact on people's cognition. I think that's been an interesting um, message that it's not just about being nice people because that's the right thing to do. And there's a patient safety angle in all of this that's really central. Civility saved lives. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Runa, listen, it's not overstating it to say that the work that you and you know your team do around non-technical skills and human factors continues to help save lives, as you alluded to, from a patient safety aspect. We salute the work you've done in the past. We salute all the work you've done to bring us as surgeons, the surgical community as a whole, up to speed with with human factors, individual behavior and and team working. We wish you well and we thank you very much for coming on the podcast. No, it's been Uh, a pleasure. pleasure. Thank you so much for for these encouraging uh, comments. Uh, It's just, uh, yeah, been, as I said, a, a privilege to be able to work with your profession. I remain hugely impressed. It's all very well standing on the sidelines writing descriptions, but you're actually in there uh, doing it and uh, with great benefit to all of us. So to have had a chance to contribute into your world at all uh, has been uh, amazing. And I've learned lots lots from it. And it's been a great pleasure to blether to the two of you today. Thank you. Long may this um, psychology and surgical relationship persist. Um, Now, guys, if you have any questions, comments, anything, as always, our email address is comms at rcsed.ac.uk. That is C-O-M-M-S at rcsed.ac.uk. We would love to hear from you. And until next time, it's goodbye and stay safe from me. And a thank you once again to Rona. Thanks, Rona. Pleasure. Bye, guys. All the best. Bye, guys.